we seek in our lives depend on two things. Number one, knowing God more truly. And number two, knowing how God regards us and how God sees us. Those two things have to fit together. That really goes deep into the history of Christian theology. John Calvin, the famous reformer, said that all true knowledge ultimately consists in this, the knowledge of God, knowledge of ourselves. And you can only know God if you know yourself, and you can only know yourself if you know God. The two work together. And so we need to understand God. We need to understand how God sees us. Those are two things that are absolutely essential if we're going to live as God would have us live. So God, God told Samuel to anoint a man named Saul to be king over Israel. That wasn't what God had planned, but Israel demanded a king. They wanted a king to rule over them like all the other nations had. They wanted to be like the other nations. So Saul was anointed, and Saul was an impressive-looking man. He had every attribute you would expect from a king. He looked like a king. He was head and shoulders taller than everyone else. So when he was anointed, it looked like Israel had the king that they needed. But of course, Saul wasn't what they needed. He, he disobeyed God, not once, but repeatedly. And the time came when his disobedience was so flagrant and his denials of his sin so steady, his excuses so persistent that the judgment of God fell and the prophet came to him and said, God has rejected you as king over Israel. We read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 15. God desires obedience. Sacrifice doesn't substitute, says Samuel. God has found you wanting in obedience and he has rejected you. In fact, God, God has chosen one better than yourself. That's not the word you want to hear from a prophet of God. But Saul had been rejected, and God had chosen someone else. That brings us to chapter 16, when God sends Samuel to anoint that someone else to become king. Now, what I want to focus on are two things that Samuel learns in the process. God actually corrects Samuel's thinking twice. And how he corrected him means everything for us because it tells us something about God and it tells us something about how God sees us. These are very important truths. It comes immediately after God has announced that he has rejected Saul. Or I say immediately after, it's the next event that's recorded in Scripture. We're not quite sure how much time elapsed between the rejection of Saul, and the events we'll read in just a moment. But it was the very next thing, and I want to read it today. We're going to start, though, at the last verse of chapter 15. Read with me, would you? Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Then time passes. We don't know how much. God comes to Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. 
I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord says, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they saw him. They asked, Did you come, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. It's only in that last verse that we see this young man, really a boy, was David. He was to be the second king of Israel, the king who was exemplary for all the kings that followed him. He was to be the ancestor to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is known as the son of David, Messiah. So God is going to raise up David to replace Saul. But before that can happen, Samuel has to be corrected in two ways. The first way has to do with how he was mourning and grieving over the fall of Saul. Now, I think Samuel cared about Saul, but you never get the feeling as you read 1 Samuel that they were all that close. So no doubt he grieved for Saul as a person because, well, he had disobeyed and God had rejected him as king. But I think more to the point, he was grieving over Saul because of the impact it would have on Israel. He knew that this was going to be a dark time for Israel. They were facing danger from the Philistines. Saul was supposed to lead the people into battle, and now Saul has been rejected. He's been abandoned by God. And now all the things that God had warned about, all the things God said would happen if the people or the king disobeyed him, now Samuel's thinking, those things are going to happen. This is a dark time. He's grieving over what Saul had done and how God had rejected him. He's grieving and perhaps longing it had been otherwise. If only 
If only it had been different. Finally, God calls to him. God regrets that he made Saul his king, but he comes to Samuel and he says, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? How long? I've rejected him. How long are you going to hold on to that? How long are you going to sit in the darkness? How long are you going to be looking back? What you need to do is to get your horn of oil and be on your way to anoint the man that I have called to replace Saul. I have rejected him. That's not going to change. That's history. Now you must stand up and follow. You cannot follow God by facing backwards. You can only follow God by facing forwards. You can't wallow in your grief. You have to go forward with him. It doesn't matter what the cause of that grief might be. It might be your own sin. That one thing that Blake mentioned. That one thing that you think stands between you and God and that can never be repaired. You think back to that and you just can't get past it. Maybe it's not just some sin from your past. Maybe it's some sin with which you're struggling now. And you can't get past that in your mind and you can't go forward with God because you're stuck right there. Or it might be something very different. It might be someone else's sin or it might be some tragedy that happened. Whatever it is, it's a loss. It's a setback. It's something you regret, something you wish were different, something you, you look at and think, oh God, if only, if only. Now the Bible says there's a time for everything under the sun. There certainly is a time to grieve. There is a time to lament. There's a time to lament over your sin. There's a time to feel your guilt and be humbled by it. There's a time to lament over losing someone or losing something that you really valued, losing the future that you thought you would have. There's a time for that kind of grief. The Bible has so many passages that give words to that kind of grief. Go to the Psalms and you'll find what scholars call the Psalms of Lament, where the psalmist pours out the pain and the disappointment and the sorrow and the anger that fills his heart. Those are words for us to be able to pour out our hearts before God as well. So there is a time for lament. There's a time for grief. There's a time for sorrow. There's also a time to say, enough. There's a time to say, I have to stand up and go on. I can't serve God by looking back. I can only serve God by looking forward and walking forward. And that's what God says to Samuel. Look, how long are you going to grieve over this? I've already rejected Saul. That's not going to change. And I have already chosen someone to replace him. Now get up and go and anoint him. Some of us need to hear that message, that it's time to get up and go forward. Forget what you've done. Forget what you've lost. Forget all the hopes that you may have had that are now dashed. Forget all of that. God has called you and you need to go forward. Don't live in the darkness. Don't cling to the regret. Don't nurse the guilt. 
Don't nurse the guilt. Some people think that they're not allowed to go forward. Sometimes you can feel like you shouldn't, that, that you need to punish yourself a little more. Or maybe you feel like you can't because you just keep thinking it's got to be different. It should be different. But the fact is, you can and you must. Let it go and go forward with God. That's the first thing Samuel had to see, that God wants us to let it go and go forward with him. Secondly, Saul goes to Bethlehem, and he's supposed to anoint Saul's follower, rather, Saul's replacement. So he has Jesse bring his sons, and he brings his son, and he sees Eliab, and he says, this has to be the one. He cuts an impressive figure. Everyone looks at him and says, yeah, he looks like a king. He's head and shoulders taller than everyone else. But then again, so was Saul. Saul cut an impressive figure. But God had not chosen Eliab. He says to Samuel, who had gone by, these, or had gone by appearances, who was being misled by appearances, he says, listen, God doesn't look at the same things we look at. God doesn't, God, God doesn't pay a heed to the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And God says, I've not chosen Eliab. I've not chosen any of these sons who are here. He chose the youngest, a boy that Jesse didn't even think was worth bringing to the sacrifice because surely he's not the one to be anointed. He's out taking care of the sheep. David, certainly not the one that anyone would have looked and said, oh yes, here is the king of Israel. He's a boy. It actually says he's a, he's a good-looking boy. <laughs> Big deal. He looks, he looks so nice. He looks so, I'm sure, uh, you know, likable. And all. He doesn't look like a warrior. Let's put it that way. He doesn't look like someone who's going to be able to lead people. But that's the one God chose because God wasn't choosing by the outward appearance. God was choosing by the heart. God always looks to the heart. We, on the other hand, are always looking on the outside. We're always looking on the outside. And we're always curating the impression we give to others. I think a lot of times it's because we're trying to keep our fragile self-esteem in place. We we judge ourselves by how how people view us. And so we're always trying to make sure the image is just right. And so we try to look right. We try to talk right. We try to do the things that are right. We try to fit in in different ways. If we were half as good as our Instagram account, man, we would be amazing. If our life was half as interesting as that. You know, we, we are so focused on the external. That's always been the case, but I think maybe more now than ever. Focused on the external. Or we're focused on the resume virtues, the things that we're trying to put out there to impress people. But God looks at the heart. What's in the heart? That's what God cares about. That's what God's impressed with. That's what he's trying to get through to Samuel. Now, now some of you may feel like, you know, I'm not very impressive. You know, I'm not that smart. I'm not that good looking. I'm not that whatever. 
You don't feel like you've got that, but that's not how God's judging you. God looks at the heart. God can use you. God will use you based on what is in you. Now, some scholars commenting on this passage think the writer got it wrong. I know because I read some of their commentary this last week. They, they say this can't, this can't really be right, that God chooses David because he looks on the heart and David's heart is somehow different from Saul's heart. Because they point out when you look at David's life, he's not exactly, well, pure and holy in all he does. Far from it. I mean, David certainly has his virtues, but many times his righteous acts are also very self-serving. Go back and read the story very carefully, and you'll see that, that sometimes he's, he's very generous with his opponents when it's politically expedient to be generous. He can also be extremely harsh when it serves his purposes. He's a man that can be heroic, and his faith in God can be extraordinary, but there are also times when he looks anything but heroic. He looks shabby and weak. And then, of course, we all know the infamous sin with Bathsheba and how he manipulates things to see to it that her husband would die in battle. Horrible sin. So some scholars say, how in the world does David come off looking better in his heart to God than Saul. And they say, really, it's equivalent. And, and they just say, well, you know, somehow, somehow the text says that God favored Saul and not David. They don't know what to do with that. But I think the problem there is a failure to, to deal more, more deeply and sensitively to what it means that God looks on the heart. And this is really important because this, this has a lot to do with where we are and who we are. And I'm going to tie this, this with the first point I was making in just a minute. It's all going to be tied together. Think about two men who come home from work one day. They're both married. They both have wives. And both of their wives say to them, it's over. I'm leaving. Neither man expected to hear that. And let's suppose their wives tell the same story. You are selfish. You think only about work, about your career. You ignore me. You ignore the children. When we get in your way, you explode in anger. We're all tiptoeing on eggshells around you all the time. There's so much tension in the house. I just can't take it anymore. Let's say these two men come home. That's what both of their wives say to them. So in all appearances, by outward appearance, it all looks very much the same. But let's say the first man says, yeah, well, you know what? You pretty much do the same thing. And he starts running down a list of all of his wife's faults. And they go back and forth. And then he says, you know, you may think that you're going to be happier, but don't count on it. Go ahead. Go ahead. You can leave. We'll get a divorce. I'll find somebody else. I'm going to be fine. Not so sure you're going to be fine. And don't think I'm just going to let you take everything. The other man, he starts off defensive. Wait, how can you say that? You know that I love you. But then, but then he starts breaking down. I know you're right. I'm, I'm so sorry. I know sorry isn't good enough. I've said sorry before. I know it's not good enough. 
And I don't know how I can make it right. I don't even know if this can be repaired, but I'd like it to be repaired. I'm willing to do what I need to do. Please help me to see what I can do. Please, please consider it. Let's try to work on this together. Now, at first, both those men look like they're the same person. They're almost identical, but they're very different, aren't they? What's in their heart is very different. They both sinned against their wife and their children in the same way, but their hearts are very, very different. So Psalm 51 is attributed to David, and it's said that he wrote the psalm after his sin with Bathsheba. Think about David's whole life. Think about the down times he had them. Think about the errors. Think about the sins and the failure. And here's what he wrote. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from all my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Can you imagine Saul ever praying such a prayer? No, when he was confronted, he denied he sinned. And then he made excuses for his sin. And then when he finally said, okay, I've sinned, he says to Samuel, could you please go with me back to do the sacrifice? Could you please honor me with your presence so all the people will see that you're standing by me and, and, and they'll believe that God is still with me? Will you do that, Samuel? In other words, he's trying to deal with the consequences of sin, but there's no remorse there. There's no remorse. You see, as Saul's life goes on, he can be depressed, he can have regret, but there's no remorse before God. And yet here with David, who could sin like Saul, you see real remorse, humility, repentance, contrition. 
We look on the outward appearance. Who stands head and shoulders above everyone else? Who is impressive? God looks at the heart, and what does he look for? Well, he's not going to find perfection. He can't be looking for perfection. He's looking for a heart of someone who will seek him and use even their sin as a reason to seek him. He's looking for someone with a contrite heart, a humble heart, a heart that is fastened on him. That's what God seeks. That's what God treasures and values. That's why he chose David over Saul. In many ways, David relates to Saul like Peter relates to Judas. Peter denied Christ. Judas denied Christ, betrayed him. Judas hung himself in despair. Peter went out and wept bitterly so that when Jesus rose, he said to the women, go tell my disciples and Peter that I'll meet them in Galilee. Peter wept bitter tears because his heart, his heart loved God. Here's where I'm going with all of that. I can't read everyone's heart, and it certainly is true that, that we need to be suspicious of ourselves. <laughs> we do. We need to realize that we're not always as purely motivated as we think. So I can't read everyone's heart, but I can say this. Here you are this morning. Here you are this morning. What did it take to get here? I don't mean this morning. I mean in terms of your life. What did it take to get here? How many times have you had to shake off the guilt of your failure and just keep going on? How many times have you faced disappointments and you had to say, I'm going to trust God anyway? How many times did you have to just step up out of the darkness and go forward in order to be here this morning? Here you are seeking God. Are you perfect? I know you're not perfect, and I can't read your heart, but I suspect for most, maybe everyone here, it's in your heart to love, to serve God, to follow God. That's in your heart. That's what God's looking for. That's what God's looking for. He's not looking for the person who never fails. He's looking for the person who's looking for the person who will transmute that failure into prayer who will transmute it into an into a, 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 a earnest seeking of the Lord, a request for forgiveness, a prayer for grace. That's what God is looking for. That's what he's looking for. Is that you? Is that you? In a sense, this message has been in two parts. I mean, the first part... It's, you know what, there are times you're grieving and you've just got to stand up and start going forward with Christ. Don't get stuck in the darkness. Don't cling to the past. The second part is about God not, not being impressed with outward things, but he looks to the heart. But what does he look for? He looks for a person of contrition and humility that seeks him and seeks to follow him in spite of all their weaknesses and failures, the person who will not let go of God. 
The person who, like the thief on the cross, will side with God against himself, saying, I deserve this, but this man has done nothing wrong. To, to, to the person who says, God, you are righteous and holy, and I am not, and I need you, and I call on you now. That's what he's looking for. Those are two parts, but in a way, those really do come together, particularly, particularly if you, if you need to come back to Christ, you need to recommit your life to follow him, particularly if that's the case, because where you are sitting right now in the darkness, you need to stand up and walk out of that. You don't wallow in it. You don't stay in it. You don't think I deserve it. You say, by the grace of God, I'm, I'm going forward now. I'm leaving behind the past. I'm leaving behind the chains. I'm going forward. And you do it with a contrite heart, knowing that God receives you when you seek him. There's too much perfectionism in a lot of our minds, too much perfectionism, and we confuse it with righteousness. Righteousness is at its root to be right with God. That's what righteousness is. And God says, you put your faith in Christ and you seek me, you're right with me. Perfectionism is as far from righteousness as the gospel of the Pharisees is from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this morning, here is your opportunity to rise up out of the darkness, out of the defeat, out of the disappointment, out of the grief. It's time to rise up. You can't undo the past. It's done. God has closed that chapter, and there's a new chapter that he wants to begin, but you've got to move from where you are. And it doesn't matter if you're perfect. You can't be perfect. What does matter is that your, your heart is fastened on God. Other people might say, oh, I know you. I've seen you. I know what you're about. I know, I know, I know what you can do. I know what, how you can sin. I know all about you. Yeah, well, other people might look on the outward appearance, but God sees a broken heart and God sees a contrite heart. And if you want God in the depths of your being, you have him because he's here for you right now. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you that your grace goes beyond, far beyond anything we could hope or imagine. God, we, we see in this the sort of God you are, the God who takes us into the future, the God who values the friendship with his people and calls his people to him. Lord, we see this and we pray that you would give us grace to turn to you now and to step out of the past. Fill us with your spirit. Do your transforming work now, we pray. Amen.